0: Alex Pearson I was known him to be a man of strength, intelligence and compassion but getting to know someone as a family friend or a friend of your father's is very different from having the honour of working alongside them so it has been a true honour since the beginning of my mandate to come to know the Governor General not only as a friendly neighbor quite literally but as a man of integrity who embodies the principles for which our country stands
1: and it's that relationship that raises questions is David Johnson unimpeachable Alex Pearson with you on this Thursday March 16th and a good morning to you and we jump into what will be my last show for a break. I'm going to take a break. I'm getting off this hamster wheel of crazy because it's never not going to be crazy, right? Yeah, I'm going to go uh, enjoy a little bit of March break with my son. And so uh, Ed Keenan, you uh, might know him from the Toronto Star. He'll be sitting in. So I hope you'll uh, join him. But uh, there's a lot to cover. And certainly, I mean, I, I, you, t- you take a break now when the news is all, like never ending. Uh, the news will never not be ending. So, uh, you know, I'll get I'll get off the hamster wheel now and then I'll come back to more news. But certainly there's a lot going off uh, on as I uh, get into my last day and certainly we will cover it because we've got our special rapporteur. Can we just kill this word? I hate this word so much. It's so stupid. I feel stupid saying it. Um, But I want to be clear from the top. David Johnson is a respected man. He's got a remarkable career. Um, He was a great governor general. But the question is, and what the prime minister has to present, is someone who is unimpeachable. Because it's going to be Mr. Johnson who has to decide if this whole mess goes to the inquiry that Canadians very much want and the opposition's been demanding. So let's go through the credentials and you decide. Because this is going to be one of those, depends on how you see it. It's a a debatable of whether or not he's the right person for the job. Um, he was a Stephen Harper-appointed governor general, so he will be seen as a bipartisan pick. But he has conflicts of interest, um, and he will not be tasked to get the answers we actually need in the format because it's not independent, this thing. So for the prime minister, I think Johnson's a very smart political choice because of the bipartisan um, you know, effect, the fact that he is an eminent Canadian, And people will say, yeah, he can do the job. But what is his job? Is it to get this mess off the front pages? Or is he actually going to determine how deep the threat of China goes in this country? And let me tell you, it's deeper than I think people realize. You know, he also we also need to know, again, what the prime minister knew and when. And did he do anything with the information? That is not on the mandate for Mr. Johnson. Look, he had a life in politics, long life in politics, a legal background, 30 years in law. He's got uh, credentials to see the kind of security intelligence the prime minister refuses to say if he has or hasn't seen. But his mandate has not been laid out or even a timeline. So uh, like what he's been told to investigate, again, if he's not investigating what CSIS told uh, reporters or Sam Cooper about, you know, the prime minister's office being warned about um, the threat of China and, and candidates possibly being um, funneled money, then, then this is a charade. And is he unimpeachable? I mean, it really depends on, on you, uh, on who you ask. Because he has served two prime ministers, scandal free. But there is questions about his company, you know, that he keeps So I think there are a few disqualifying factors. First, you just do a Google search and it reveals Johnson's on the board of the Trudeau Foundation, which, of course, CSIS revealed has been targeted by interference operations after Trudeau became the liberal leader. And and they've got intercepted calls as far back as 2014 between unnamed Chinese operatives at a Canadian consulate and a billionaire political advisor to the Beijing government and uh, senior officials in the United Front. And they were discussing, hey, we want Stephen Harper out and we want the Beijing-friendly liberals in. And at that time, the caller was apparently told to put $1 million in the foundation and then the Chinese government would pay it back. And then once Trudeau was elected, that foundation's bottom line surged from $53 million to $700 million. It's never been audited. So we can't say if there's any other donations. But look, the optics are not good. Again, like does no is there anyone who doesn't work for the Trudeau Foundation other than me? Anyone in this country? Terry Glavin, who will join me on the show at eleven, uh, was certainly quick to quell excitement, reminding readers that Johnson has a fairly warm relationship with President Xi. He told President Xi how Beijing felt like home. And was on this visit, and you know that included a very joyous banquet with President Xi that happened at the very moment there was an imprisoned democracy activist, Jinping Liu, who's also a Nobel Peace Prize winner, who died under heavy Chinese police guard. So we've got our allies condemning the atrocity, and and there's Johnston posing for you know photographs at this party, at uh, Xi's state guesthouse, shaking hands with a guy that just killed the killed the man. So. I mean, maybe Beijing will be happy with the choice of the rapporteur. But Terry Glavin was quick to point that out, among other things that he will explain. I mean, he does have experience in this area. As an advisor to Brian uh, Mulroney, once upon a time, and certainly he worked for uh, Stephen Harper, uh, he defined the scope of an inquiry around the Oliphant Commission, which was the uh, whole Airbus scandal. That's how you would probably remember it. And they were looking into... uh, allegations that uh, Mulroney took $2.1 million in kickbacks from a German lobbyist involved in the Airbus deal. So the question that needed to be answered was what did Mulroney get the cash for and was it connected to Airbus? And the inquiry was prevented from asking that question because Dave Johnson made sure those questions weren't part of the framework. And as a former chief of staff points out, He appointed We Charity's Craig Kielberger to the debate commission and also allowed a CBC host that sued the Conservative Party to moderate an election debate. And look, there's also these stories, you know, about uh, David Johnson's close, close friendship with Pierre and Margaret Trudeau, how their kids all played together, you know, when they were growing up because, of course, they're neighbours. They've got cottages side by side or very close by in the Laurentians. So they've got a very long relationship, which asks the question about impartiality. So look, on first blush, Trudeau will be seen to have appointed an eminent Canadian. He is. And I thought at first, yes, smart political choice. But then you do the digging and you look beyond the the governor general and you have to ask, did Trudeau just appoint a very political person, maybe the perfect person to make sure the questions he doesn't want asked to be answered? So I think it's a pretty sly move because he's brought in someone who is liked and respected and because he was appointed by Harper, he is seen as bipartisan. And what does Pierre Pauly ever do? Uh, He still has not yet uh, commented on this. He has not issued a statement. Like, what's he going to say about his old boss? So it's tricky. Melissa Lansman's raised some questions, certainly about the uh, association with the Trudeau Foundation. But after three weeks of twisting himself into a pretzel with all these non answers, look, it was Trudeau's idea to go this route. Everyone else, including that, they all want an inquiry. He chose to go with the rapporteur. And so he is absolutely obligated to pick someone absolutely unimpeachable. And as remarkable as Mr. Johnson is, there are close connections that will cast, you know, cast doubts for a lot of people. And that's the problem. It's about optics. Why couldn't they? Is there not one out of the 35 million people in this country? There's got to be one person who isn't connected to the Ottawa bubble or any of that incestuous world. And um, he will ultimately be the one who decides on an inquiry. Opposition wants it. The question is, will he? And this is how it should have gone from the start. But this whole thing has been muddied and politicized that I'm not sure we're ever going to get the clear answers. And there's already more stories breaking today. Globe and Mail reporting uh, pretty explosive CSIS reports of Chinese interference in Vancouver's uh, 2022 municipal election, and there was an operation to get Chinese operatives elected to advance China's interests. And you know, Vancouver's mayor Kennedy Stewart, who had questioned interference, was very critical of Beijing, but he lost that race, and a Chinese Canadian was uh, chosen. So this is all levels, all parties, all politics in this country, and we need to find out what's going
2: on. This is one important step in an ongoing process to prove my innocence and recover my reputation.
1: is the voice of Major General Danny Fortin back in the day trying to defend himself on allegations that uh, he insists did not happen. But he is suing the Prime Minister, we learn, uh, the Defence Chief General uh, Wayne Iyer, former Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan, former Health Minister Patti Haju Clerk of the Privy Council, basically uh, several political aides. You know, th- those who he feels threw him under the bus on what were Very shaky allegations of sex assault dating back like three decades, four decades, like a long time. And he was cleared of back in uh, December of 2022. I mean, this is a man who led the vaccine rollout, the COVID vaccine rollout, and then vanished suddenly on a Friday night, like in the late Friday night uh, on these accusations after serving a stellar military career and had a stellar reputation. And then, of course, that's all derailed. Um, you know, by this allegation. And so his statement of claim um, talks about the fact that there was no due process, a shoddy police work, political interference. Uh, The military looked into this and found nothing. So he wants justice. Abdullah Barkawi is a lawyer with Conway Litigation Council on record with this matter and joins us now. So good to have you. Thank you.
2: Thank you for having me. Good morning.
1: So the uh, general is seeking $5 million in general damage, $1 million in punitive damage. I-, I will go out on a limb here and say that uh, General Danny Fortin would likely just like his reputation back.
2: That's right. It's, uh, his reputation has been, has been tarnished. And that, has, that obviously affects his current status and his current role at the, uh, at the military and his future prospects. So it's um, his reputation and the way it has been damaged is currently effective and affecting him and will affect him for the future, too.
1: So this will be a very high profile case. Uh, the other one that we saw was uh, Vice Admiral Mark Norman. Uh, that case ended up uh, going away very quietly in a big payout. And uh, we've never gotten the disclosure on that. But disclosure to me in this would be very uh, interesting, to say the least, um, which tells me that this you know, ho- ho- likely won't see a court of law, but but Fortin truly believes, um, you know, that, that he can get answers here.
2: Well, it's uh, th- that's th- that's the uh, the purpose behind a standing claim. It's it's uh, it's seeking a, a remedy for for what what, he's, uh, what he has been inflicted on him. The, the, the tragic events of the past two years uh And somebody's got to answer what what happened to him, because what happened to him as 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 you suggested earlier is wrong and uh quite uh, quite extreme it's he was accused of uh, uh an allegation of sexual assault, and he was innocent and he still is innocent and uh it, there was no basis for uh what happened to major 410 to happen so somebody's got to answer uh to, to what happened to him.
1: The unfortunate reality, and I'm sure that you realize this, is in the court of public opinion, when you are accused of a sex crime, any kind of sex crime, it just doesn't go away. It's something that hangs over the person, uh, no matter what any court rules. And that is just the unfortunate reality.
2: Yes, it is. That. It is an unfortunate reality. And that, that that is why it's even more important to handle these cases properly, which was not done in, in this case. Because of, of of the 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 reality that you're talking about and the perceptions that that, that happen right away, mm-hmm. and it also goes to to the core values of what what we as Canadians believe, right? The right to be presumed innocent until you're proven guilty, the the right of of somebody who's accused of a crime to have a proper investigation that actually looks into all the evidence, not just evidence that could potentially be incriminating, but evidence that could be. Uh, helpful to that person accused of a crime. And that did not happen in 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 this case. Um, but you're right. The reality is, and that's why in in large part uh, his reputation is damaged because of the way the case was handled and how it was communicated to the public at the time.
1: At the time, um, if my recollection serves me right, you know, we're in the middle of COVID. He's chosen to do the COVID uh, rollout, which he did. Um, but there were a lot of military stories uh, and complaints of sexual harassment, etc. It, it was immersed, you know, and in the spotlight kind of every day. Uh, and so when he was accused of it, he kind of got lumped in on that. Does he believe he was just a scapegoat? Is there, has he ever explained or given a reason as to why he feels he was, uh, you know, all of a sudden thrown under the bus? Because he's not the first.
2: He, he, well, he's not the first. And what's fascinating about um, uh, uh, Major, Major Don case is he's never been given a reason. He was just told uh, you were going to leave. He was told about, about the allegation. But there there is no reasoning or rationale behind it, especially when the allegation was not something that was about something that was re- recent. As, as you mentioned, it was an allegation that something happened more than 30 years ago. And out of nowhere he was uh just uh kicked off of, of of the role that he was playing. Uh and as you know and as everybody knows, he was doing an impeccable job mm-hmm. with, with the vaccine rollout. Mm-hmm. He's he is someone who served honorably in the military for for thirty years. His if you look at his performance reviews, they talk about his reputation. They talk about how He he championed diversity and championed uh, gender issues in the military. And what is remarkable is given all of that, out of nowhere, he gets booted without any fair process, without any due process, without any rational thinking or or, uh, valid explanations.
1: And and he has said, you know, he just wanted his job back. Um, Was he at any time... Uh, told by any of the upper echelons that, you know, once this is cleared, he can go back to his job?
2: Well, it's, uh, that's, that's, that's been uh, part of the, uh, of, the, of the dialogue, right? So in December, after uh, he was acquitted, there was an internal review at the Kenyan uh, Armed Forces, and that review concluded that on the balance of probability uh he did not commit the uh, the the allegations that he was accused of and uh, that was a a part of the process to seek to reintegrate him and but if you if if you look at the events that are happening the, the, the 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 military and senior political actors who are named in the same claim clearly do not want him to be back because if if it, he that's, that's what he wants to do. He wants to go back and, and do his work and to serve. He's ready to serve, and that's what he's been wanting to do for uh, for, the, for the past two years. But it seems that regardless of anything that has happened, uh, his reputation has been so tarnished by all the defendants that are named the claim that the military itself can't uh, take him back because of the political climate that was created by senior uh, uh, political actors. right? Um, and it, it's uh, it, it, but what, 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 what I want to add, and it's, it's an important point. If you look at Danny Fortin's case mm-hmm. and you ask yourself, has he done anything wrong? The answer is no. And yet he is standing here today, the person who has suffered the most and who has uh, continuing damages right now and in the future. And that, that cannot be right. And that cannot be fair. And that cannot be what uh, Canadian stands for.
1: Yeah, and sadly, he's not the first. But um, does he regret uh, taking this assignment? Uh, I, I, I,
2: I I can't answer that uh, because I don't know. But what I, what I can tell you is, Danny Danny Fortin uh, has always served uh, loyally with honor and with integrity. That has been his goal since he started. Uh, when he was a young cadet, all the way up to uh, when he was uh, assigned his his latest role with the, with the vaccine rollout. So I I don't think he's regretted anything that he has done with with, with the military. I think he still respects the institution, um, to, to, uh, a lot. Uh, and it was very difficult for him to to name people who he used to work with. Yeah. At uh, as the uh, Armed forces, it wasn't an easy decision for him to make. But uh, at the end of the day, um, he has been so harmed that he's got to do something.
1: Stay tuned on this one. Uh, very much appreciate you uh, joining us and uh, putting in some perspective as to what this uh, w- uh, the process and what we're dealing with. Thank you so much, Abdallah.
2: OK, thank you very much for having me.
1: That is uh, Abdallah Barkawi, who's with uh, Conway Litigation. They have been uh, representing Mr. Fortin, General Fortin. And um, uh, we'll keep an eye on this. My ruling? <coughs> He'll get a payout. This will not make it to court. Just like Vice Admiral Mark Norman, who is also thrown under the bus and then, of course, I think has the upper hand. There's no way any of these players are allowing disclosure. Not a chance. So it will go away. Uh, they should have just given this man his job back. I, I, I think he's been treated disgracefully. So my money's on General Furtain. Stay tuned to that.
0: This is Alex Pearson.
1: Lots to talk about because, of course, remember, when John Tory was the mayor, before he met the 31-year-old, he talked about housing. That was all his, you know, legacy was going to be about. Housing, housing, housing. And then his sudden exit came and this by-election to uh, find his replacements really thrown, I guess, all of this housing stuff into question. The deputy mayor, Jennifer McElvee, who is or was a Tory ally, came out um, Wednesday following a report that calls the plan to build 280,000 units over 10 years into question that she is pushing to get the shovels in the ground ASAP. Uh, But there might be a mayor who has got different ideas. Nonetheless... We've got plans in front of council that uh, were approved back in December to change zoning rules, which would make it easier to build, you know, mid-rise buildings, low-rise buildings on your street in your community. But it didn't make recommendations on the more important parts of the deal, which is uh, loosening zoning to allow small apartment buildings, and the most contentious, I think, of the um, uh, plans, which would be legalizing rooming houses. Which has to be done right. Let me bring in Eric Lombardi, he, uh, an affordable housing advocate with More in Neighbors Toronto. Good to have you, Eric. Uh,
0: thank you for having me on, Alex. And I would just say that yep. I'm a I'm a end the housing crisis advocate, not just an affordable housing advocate.
1: Yeah, I mean, right now, everything is in a crisis. So we need lots of advocates to get it all done. So um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, your concerns, because I think, you know, when we chatted last time, John Tory was all about it. We were on a path and now that path is skewed. So where are your concerns right now?
0: My major concerns, I think, are still where they've always been in that the political incentive to move at the level of urgency that we need to end the housing crisis is not there yet and if you look at the housing action plan that was released uh this week which was an initiative that john tory started you know there is some space for cautious optimism but if you read the details there's also a lot of you know opportunity for cynicism especially in what the city is saying it it can do um over the next coming years to really make these reforms
1: well i mean i don't think i need to tell you but toronto is infamous for doing U-turns on stuff. They put a plan in, everyone thinks it's a done deal, and then 10 years later you're saying, didn't you say you would build something? And then it just, we, we're doing it with a gardener, we've done it with transit. And so we know that even cautious optimism is, is certainly not enough to get things done around this city. Um, and so when could we, I mean, do we have to wait for a, a mayor, Eric, to get this part of, uh, of the project going? Because we don't have a lot of time, we don't have any time. We, we were in crisis 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, But what what do you expect that will get shovels in the ground?
0: So, you know, just beyond what the city is doing, I think the most important fact for anyone to know is if we built, if we turned one in every 100 single family homes into a fourplex every year for the next 10 years, we would be more than halfway to our uh, 10 year housing targets. And that's without doing anything else.
1: Okay. So, and again. so one one
0: in every one hundred single okay. family homes right. every year uh, becoming a fourplex right. would add enough housing in the city to more than meet our housing goals by more than half. It would build more than one hundred and fifty thousand net new homes that would actually be large enough uh, for most families.
1: Yeah, but there are there are other issues, especially when it comes. To rooming houses, um, they are always seen as very contentious. Everyone wants them until they come to your neighborhood and you're like, yeah, yeah, no, 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 I don't want them here. So they have to be done right, um, because otherwise people, you'll get no buy-in from people. And so part, a part of the, the strategy, I think, has to be giving clarity and uh, a lot of, uh, you know, understanding for people to get their heads around this.
0: I agree with you. And I also think, um, you know, our civic leaders need to talk about who needs rooming houses and how we can also address those in other ways. Right. So a lot of rooming houses uh, in the city and a lot of the concerns around them are actually close to our colleges and universities where you know, they are not building an adequate amount of student housing. So you know, I think when we have this conversation about rooming houses, we also need to talk about who those rooming houses are often for. They're often for students, um, young people moving out for the very first time, and a lot of new immigrants. And one of the challenges that the city has had is they've been illegal in a lot of neighborhoods, but that doesn't mean that we haven't had them. And therefore the people who live in these, uh, rooming houses are actually not given rights, um, or even, you know, guarantees to adequate living conditions that should actually make all of us, um, you know, quite upset. And so the legalization of these is not about, you know, bringing, you know, tons of new, rooming houses to every neighborhood. It's about giving protection to people, many of whom are living in living conditions that we just shouldn't accept.
1: It's also about um, making sure that those who have them are running them properly, that they are abiding by the rules. I mean, we, we've had fires just this week in rooming houses, and we know things Absolutely. can go wrong if there's no protections in place. But you also need it to make sure that the neighbors know, hey, look, we've got one in our neighborhood; uh, it's run very well; it's not been an issue. If you want buy in in other neighborhoods, because if you get a rooming house that's run badly and becomes, you know, that eyesore on the block, people will continue to push back, and they are a very big part of getting housing uh, available to to people who can't really afford to get into the market.
0: Yeah, they're the most accessible form of market uh, housing Mm -hmm. in the city. Um, And I think one of the things that we don't talk a lot about is, um, you know, I I wouldn't call them rooming house models, but co-living models, where people do share much nicer common facilities. And so part of the legalization is actually about making the living conditions better in them and also making that form of living an option for a lot more people,
1: yeah. Um,
0: and you know, I, I think that is just one of many avenues that we need to be looking at if we meaningfully want to impact, um, you know, ending this crisis.
1: Well, we have so many buildings that just sit waiting for zoning approvals, or development, or whatever. Um, you know, they just sit there unused. And I think if they're done properly, and I think if you turn older homes into them and they're run probably they can they they would be part of the community but there are areas eric that you know will not want that they don't want them in etobicoke they will not want them in uh, downtown toronto like up in the forest hill areas like there are there's going to be the nimbys
0: yeah and i think that like you know culturally as a society we need to look upon that type of attitude as the negative influence that it is and something that is depriving people of their right to opportunity uh, in in the city um, you know, I think a lot of people do feel protected of their neighborhoods, and I, I think that's fair. I also think the development industry and planning and architects have a lot to answer for, because for a lot of people, they've seen a lot of new development that has sanitized their 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 communities and has not built places that are actually, to a lot of people, nice to be, be in. But that does not have to be true. And so I think we need to renew our focus on also you know the beauty of the pedestrian spaces that we're, we're building and focus less on you know the density or or heights um, or you know, who might be able to access that type of building and I think if we can get that social buy-in we'll be far on our way in the politics of of doing better on this too
1: we're just not good at um, seeing the big picture. You know, I drove down, um, uh, you know, because I have to, because it's been around for 10 years, There's the Eglinton Line. I mean, they've been building it forever. And all the stations, Eric, every single station is a one-story box. And I think, are you kidding me? You had the it's opportunity ridiculous. to build up, <laughs> and you could have put all these people in places up above transit, and they didn't. There's not one. It is insanity that no it- one thought this.
0: I mean, you know, we, we've made these decisions like this for, for decades, right? Um, and even, you know, in, in the Ontario Liberal era, um, where we had the growth centre strategy, they were never actually intended to execute well. And I think in a lot of cases, you know, we, we've seen that growth pattern def- defined in that time, even from the provincial level, mm-hmm. that has left a lot of people unsatisfied as well. I will give some credit to the, the city of Toronto and the current provincial government they are not going to make that same mistake on the Ontario line investment. And the vast majority of stations are being planned as, you know, higher density transit oriented communities.
1: That's a good idea in 2023. Stay tuned, (laughs) Eric. Thank you. Thanks. That's uh, Eric Lombardi, who's been fighting for this for a long time. But yeah, like, honestly, you drive along that Eglinton road. I mean, it is such, it is so obvious what needed to happen there. You could have put like, if five levels of how many apartments, it's just, and not one, it's just these little box and all this wasted space. We're not smart in the city of Toronto.